welcome to an all-new episode of Talking Foosball Extra, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. My name is Nick Biltong, and today we're going to talk about an energy drink company and their influence within the world of German football. As many of you know, the man who built up this energy drink empire, his name was Dieter Matitschitz, he died on October 22nd. Today we're going to take a closer look at his life, why he decided to spend an awful lot of money within the world of football. Joining me to talk about Rasenballsport Leipzig, the RB system, and Dieter Matitschitz is none other than Jasmine Baba. How are you doing today? I am good. Feeling powerful? Yes, pow- very powerful. It feels like I've got my wings back. Well, I feel like we should just preface this with, we tried to record this last night and in the middle of, well, we didn't even get to record it while we were just dying, a power cut happened. So this is our second try of doing this podcast. Maybe Didi Matichitz struck from above, above, below, but uh, <laughs> Oh, no dancing on his grave. I was, I, I told you before we started recording. <laughs> and so no snipe comments either. <laughs> That's Please. not, uh, anyways, that's not man- snide, that is literally correct. <laughs> Unless he's being cremated, then, then that is wrong. Right. Anyways, in part one, we'll take a closer look at uh, the Austrian multi-billionaire, who he was, uh, why he got into the world of sports in general, and more specifically football. And in part two, we'll talk about the influence the RB system has had on German football. So all of that is to come. Right, here we go. This is part one of Talking Foosball Extra, the Bundesliga show. We're talking about Dieter Matichitz, the Austrian multi-billionaire who built up the RB Empire. Anyways, Jasmine, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who that guy was? Yeah, so he was born in then Nazi Germany, so just before the Second World War ended, which is now in Austria. And he went to Vienna, what is now Vienna University of Economics and Business, which he spent quite a while. I'm not sure if he only got a degree, but his master's as well in business. And he was really, really passionate about not business from an early age, but extreme sports, a real like, not trailblazer, but loved the adrenaline from extreme sports from an early age. And once he came out of business school, he worked for Unilever and then moved on to what is now Procter & Gamble, the cosmetics company. And he was traveling quite a lot for those companies. And it was not until he was traveling in Thailand where he bought an energy drink. Absolutely loved it. Felt like his exhaustion from traveling went away and the kind of gears in his head started running on how he could make this worldwide because he thought it would be really helpful. And that was basically in the start of Red Bull. He found the owner of this drink, which I think was called... Um, my Thai is not the best. So Krating Deang was the drink. I think is Carabao also Thai? Carabao's also like an energy drink from that region of Asia. So, uh, yeah, big on their energy drinks there. But he found the owner of that company, again, gonna butcher the name, Chaleo Uvidia, and struck a partnership deal. 
And it turns out like he was trying to reformulate it. And at the time, the owner of those energy drinks were already selling to like lorry drivers and other business people, I think uh, laborers as well to keep them energetic. And that's how Red Bull got started, especially from in Europe. He wanted to brand it in an Austrian way. And I think it's fair to say he was pretty successful with that. Well, what besides importing a rather exotic product to Europe and other parts of the world that hadn't seen it before, Matichit actually used some rather unusual marketing tools to get the word out that, you know, we can, you know, keep you uplifted for some time, even when you feel tired. Just drink this. So how did he go about that? I'm actually not too clued up on this part, but I think I know. I'm going to throw it out there and you're going to tell me if I'm wrong or right. Is it because he associated it with extreme sports and it became their branding? There is one one part of it, but I mean, they had a lot of other different things that they had you know, at the start. I mean, some of you who are old enough, like me, came to remember that, you know, some people actually were paid money to drive around in sort of mini cars. Oh, yeah, the- that had a Red Bull back. Gee, I forgot that. So that was part of the branding. Then they got into, you know, extreme sports, Formula One, all of that. So the thinking was, and this is actually quite similar to a man called Horst Dazzler, who was in charge of Adidas uh, back in the day. Uh, and uh, Horst Dazzler's thinking was that he learned that from an early age uh, at the 56 Olympics. His thinking was that, hang on, if the athletes on television were... Uh, Adidas, this is free advertising for myself. But what Horst Dazzler then went on to do is that he bribed everyone and, you know, the free advertising started to become rather expensive after a little while, having to bribe the entire world of uh, athletics and football and all that. But that might be a topic for another podcast series. Hint, hint. So that is what Matichic sort of did the same thing, but rather in a more clever and subtle way. So his thinking was that if we place Red Bull in the world of sports and everybody associates with the world of sports and, you know, we do cool stuff like uh, throw student parties was a, was another thing that they uh, sort of sponsored the Red Bull boxes on cars. You know, go in the opposite direction than traditional advertising. That meant that they could get the word out and do it actually a lot cheaper than, let's say, hire one of these Don Draper ad agencies, making them knock up a global campaign. So um, rather clever thinking. Yeah, actually, and it's funny that you mentioned the Red Bull cars because, I, I mean, I should remember that. I, I remember seeing one. It was a, a bit like when you see a Google Maps car filming. It was back then when you saw one. It was like, oh my God, look at the Red Bull car. And now that you mention it, and especially its association with those like kind of extreme sports, Growing up, you would watch like the extreme cliff diving competitions, and maybe because I'm not neurotypical, advertising campaigns don't really work on me because I forget everything, apparently. But yeah, I remember the box car races, and like that used to be such an enjoyable part of like Sunday TV to watch with the family and. Yeah, it's really effective in that way because it used to be fun. Everyone used to talk about it. And it's one of those like one-off things that you don't get quite often. So it really sticks in your head. Yeah, I I seem to remember that they had like competitions where people had built like uh, similar things to Boxcars. The only difference was that they were sort of 
trying to dive into water and then float in these vehicles on the water. Yeah. And, you know, every one of those vehicles had, of course, some Red Bull advertising on it. But, you know, the enjoyable thing was to see, would it float? Would it not? And most of the times it would not. So that was the fun part of it, laughing at people who couldn't build floating devices. But yeah, I mean, Red Bull, they have given us some enjoyable childhood memories, if we're being honest. And I completely forgot all of them till now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that was the sort of start of um, their advertising. But this is rather inexpensive, comparably to, let's say, the world of... Formula One, which they got into. And that worked out rather well for them because Formula One is pretty much global. It reaches an audience of, I would, you know, if I would have to take a wild guess, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, if not billions. But if you want to reach billions, you have to get into the world of football. So when did Matichitz and Red Bull decide to get into football and how did they go about it? It started in 2005, and it was after he bought Austria Salzburg, and that was kind of the start of it all. He made that pretty successful, and I think one of the most fascinating things about especially this period and the way he did business is how quickly it moved on. So they had Sauber F1 racing and up until 2001, they increased that to just have the main sponsor. So it was still Sauber, but I think Red Bull had 40%, something like that, not a majority. And in 2001, they made that majority. And that's 2001. And then quickly in 2000, like from four, he was still buying motorsport stuff and then April 2005 you had Austria Salzburg and then it quickly developed like he probably saw what a market he had and then went straight into buying the American club which is now New York Red Bulls because I can't remember their original name and then in 2007 after that he founded Red Bull Brazil and then yeah in 2008 he had Red Bull Ghana which was sold, I think it's the only one he sold out of the main Red Bull groups. And then in 2009, he bought SSV Mark which is now Dajan Ball Sport Leipzig. I can't remember when he bought Levering, which is Salzburg's farm team. I think that's 2011. And yeah, I think the crazy thing is about how quick he managed to turn this all around and having a multi-club corporation isn't really new anymore i can't say back then it was probably one of the first ones to be so worldwide and spread if you compare it to like city football group because obviously they didn't buy city until 2008 or 9 around that time and it's how quick the rose had a branding scheme in place to just completely i mean as we said their branding was pretty on top anyway it was just doing this for football but it was, it's still amazing how quick they bought those clubs turned them around managed to deal with all the kind of financial difficulties well they're not really difficulties but you know the paperwork rebranding the laws to have your team play especially name changes and yeah it it was this 
multi-club foundation that could easily move with each other, benefiting each other's clubs at the time. And a really big farm system, especially when he started to buy FC Liefering, so he could move players from Brazil to America to Europe really easily. And I think that side is what made it quite attractive to other big groups trying to do the same thing, especially when you can probably fiddle taxes and um, make money-saving deals across your clubs. Right. Uh, Anyways, uh, let's take a short break and let's take a closer look at what's been going on within the RB system in Germany. Right here we go with part two of Talking Foosball Extra, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. We're still talking about the RB system, Dieter Matichitz, and what he's done within the world of football. So you mentioned it there at the end of the first segment, but let's rehash this a little bit. When did Dieter Matichitz and his company decide to establish a team in Germany, and how did they go about it? Because obviously they faced a bit of backlash and trouble, right? Yeah, so in 2009, he initiated Rosenbosport Leipzig. And so he bought SSV Marketingstadt in the Oberliga, the fifth tier of football. And I mean, there's several difficulties he ran into that. First of all, the 50 plus one rule. Obviously, it gives, I can't explain this very well, but I'll try. In Germany, members of the club have to have voting rights to vote for the board. And to bypass this at Red Bull, to become a member, you have to pay an insanely high fee and more or less be a Red Bull employee. So they can vote in basically whoever they want because they're already employed at the club. You also, to make this legitimate, you need to have at least 20 club members with voting rights. And Ripple have 21. <laughs> so that's how, well, Leipzig, I call them Ripple because they are Ripple, but obviously because of naming rights, you can't name your team after a brand, so they're called Lazenschport, but I will call them RB Leipzig from now on and not Ripple Leipzig, because that's technically wrong. So, but that's how they control the club and not have it as public as other 50 plus one clubs like Werder Bremen, like Bayern Munich. Are those good examples? Everyone but Leverkusen, Hoffenheim, Wolfsburg. But yeah, so that's how they bypassed the 50 plus one. And obviously you had things like naming rights issues. And then you also had some backlash from the fans because it's not traditional. It's not what the majority of German football is. And as much as people hate Wolfsburg, Leverkusen, Hoffenheim, there's certain roles that, like, especially Leverkusen and Wolfsburg played for having original clubs. And I think that there are that's certain degrees of it. I mean, Bayer Leverkusen has been supported by the Bayer company for ages and ages and ages. Wolfsburg, not so much been supported by Volkswagen over the course of time, but yes, it's been a little, a little while longer. Well, I mean, decades longer than with RB. Hoffenheim is maybe a little bit the odd one out here because this is just one man's work because he went into that club 
didn't buy the majority of shares or because he couldn't, but uh, the man decided just to pump that club full of his own money just, you know, from... Because he wanted to, because he wanted to get it into the Bundesliga. It's a tiny village that really, uh, if you think about it, should at most have a club in the fourth or fifth tier of German football. And to be fair, I can kind of respect Hoffenheim because that is one man who really just wanted that club to do well. And it's not like, should I say Hertha, where money is mismanaged? And he actually cares a lot more than just, here's a load of money, run off with it. I can respect that a lot more. You know, I know in German football that seems a little bit weird and I'm having an investor is kind of like bad news and I completely understand that being from the UK and watching the Premier League, believe me, but someone who is a lot more integrated into the club and the area, I can respect that a lot, but a little bit more. That's why I would say it's slightly different. But that's a whole nother episode to get into Offenheim, which one which you have probably done. I Okay, uh, uh, let's <laughs> jot that down. Uh, let's do an episode about the thin-skinned man of German football. <laughs> Anyways, as Jasmine takes a huge sip of a chocolate drink. It's kale. So oh, it's, it's kale, wow. It's, it's kale, cherry, oh, we're going to go way off track if I explain my lovely breakfast smoothie this morning. Doesn't include tarin, I take it. Anyways, Leipzig, right. But, I mean, uh, the interesting thing about RB and them finding out, well, hang on, if we want to attract a billion people to the, that size of audience, we need to get into football because it's the biggest product there is within the world of sports. Germany, obviously a big market, a natural market, as the company is from a German-language country. But they found it difficult to get into Germany. And, and you explained the sort of <laughs> voodoo they had to do, the paperwork voodoo they had to do to get it done. But for them, finding a club that they could buy or get into and transform into their own image took a lot longer than they had expected. And, you know, they started knocking on the doors of second tier clubs and went down the divisions and went all the way to Division 5. I mean, they asked... You know, I think they asked, was it TSV 8060 Munich? Got to know. They asked teams in the third and the fourth tier. They asked the old Sachsen Leipzig that was about to go bust. Even they said, no, we're not going to get into that. And finally, they found Makrenstadt, a tiny club that nobody had ever heard about. But you have to say that the positioning of them and Leipzig was a little bit of a stroke of genius. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean... In Leipzig, for anyone who hasn't been to Germany or the East, it's not a small town. That It's a well-placed city. It's a well-placed Eastern city where compared to West, compared to North, compared to the Bavarian district area, like it doesn't have most clubs there either. The East Germany football clubs is lacking a little bit compared to the rest, in the rest of Germany. And I won't go into the history of that because that will also need another podcast. But that was entirely lucky that someone in that kind of area would give up a club, even if it was down the fifth league. Right. Let's turn a little bit to the RB system. So they have established a network of clubs. Great. But what they found out rather quickly is the fact that if you have the same sort of playing philosophy at all clubs, we can integrate players a lot more quickly and move them a lot more quickly into the first 11s of the clubs where we want them to be. So can you tell me a little bit about that philosophy? 
Yeah, I think a lot of it has been down to Ralph Ragnick's work. So if it wasn't down to that stroke of genius of hiring Ralph Ragnick, actually taking attention to how he built Hoffenheim, Schalke, etc. From developing playing style in setting up a structure between youth development and senior teams, having the players qualities for scouting that he wanted that would fit his system all of this that he achieved from Ulm but more likely Hoffenheim and Schalke before he got picked up by Leipzig and Salzburg sorry he was global director of both or sporting director or whatever I can never translate the German (laughs) versions into English but all this work that he had done got picked up by Red Bull and I don't think it would exist in the manner it does in either Germany or Austria if it was not for him. And because he had such a dedicated, stubborn way of doing things, and I mean stubborn in a good way, I mean principled, he had this vision of football, he stuck with it from the late mid-90s up until, well, still today. And he set things into motion, not only for Red Bull, but also tactics in the Bundesliga with being one of the very first to implement a back four for Germany, um, introduce the style of zonal marking rather than not man marking, and being very, very aggressive, 4-4-2 high pressing, and then taking that into a place that had a big reserve of infrastructure So even more than Hoffenheim, even more than Schalke, to basically set up this whole system over two countries, have stuff like game management, game philosophy, development, to a point where they could scout players from lower leagues and youth at FC Liefering in Austria, their farm team, in Brazil, in the US, in Africa, and to take them to Liefering, see how they do, take them into Rebel Salzburg and then into RB Leipzig and it set off this farm system of all the kind of players that they wanted. But then it wasn't only players because Ralph Ragnick had such a reputation from his time in the late 90s where he was on CDF on uh, and while being at Ulm that he had a following of coaches. Coaches believed in him, they liked his style of play, and his style of play also fit into that kind of extreme entertainment that Mataschitz was also found very enjoyable. So the fast transitions, the counter-attacks, the end-to-end football, which was very aggressive and very intensive, And so not only you had all these players fitting the system, you suddenly had a lot of coaches who adopted in this philosophy, coached at these clubs with this philosophy, and then took it on. So if we look at Eintracht Frankfurt, their last three coaches, including the one that they have now, have been from RB. So Niko Kovac, Adi Hutter, and now Oliver Glaster. And yeah, there's so many. Yeah, that leads me into my next question. I mean, how many... I mean, if we, if you scour down the Bundesliga and see how many coaches have a background at RB, you can really see how big the impact of that established system that was established basically little more than a decade ago, how big the impact has been, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny to kind of list them. Edit, chop and change, so it's very hard to pinpoint how many or how many have been affected because some of these coaches have coached somewhere else before and you have to see kind of how much of their tactics really uh, take from RB to know if they were an RB coach or not. So I normally don't count Julian Nagelsmann in this, even though, but Jasmine, he coached at RB Leipzig. Yep, that, that, RB Leipzig actually has the least amount of Red Bull coaches compared to anyone. They actually the odd one out. I mean, they tried to install one and Jesse Marsh didn't work out. And now they've got Marco Rosa and um, we don't know if that's going to work. It worked last night against Real Madrid, but it hasn't really worked in the league so far. It's very hit or miss and that is really interesting. And for, I think people don't know how how extreme this goes so we can go ones that are purely rb coaches so roger schmidt uh jesse marsh adi hutter oliver glass now i would say but i have to preface that he has developed it a lot more than the standard rb coach so um marco rose is another one but he's more standard rb robert klaus from nuremberg alexander zorniger who's now at third Alexander Schmidt, who was Dresden and recently kicked off and back, but got fired because he's absolutely trash. Come on, there's more. There's more. Uh, Bo Svensson? Uh, he was mine's youth. So I've normally included Bo Svensson, but his football's not exciting. And he was mine's before RB, so I think he's a little bit worse. Hansi Flick. Hansi Flick has had some time at RB Leipzig, which is why his system's a bit more pressing. Nico Kovac, who... Probably an interesting reason why he didn't really work out at Bayern Munich. Achim Bayerlotzer. Um, Alexander Schleplewski is another who was at Auer for like three months before getting kicked out. But yeah, this is... The guy who's currently coaching Bochum? What's his uh, name? Uh, I keep forgetting it. Thomas Lech. Thomas Lech, there you go. He, That's he's, another he's, one. I mean, yes. I forgot he was We, we could back. like go on for... Frank Kramer, who was Frank like, Kramer. Target, yes. like, oh yeah, I forgot about him. <laughs> so, I mean, we could just go on and on and on. I mean, this system has churned out so many coaches that have, you know, found other employment in the Bundesliga. And, you know, from time to time, there have been like seven or eight teams at, that have been coached by a former RB coach at the same time in the Bundesliga. I mean, and, and if you have that big an impact, you might wonder, is that impact too big? Because, does it lead to a bit too much conformity within the world of tactics? Yes, and I've got one more name on my list, but I've only put their initials, and it says MG. Am I thinking of Marcus Gistel? Was he RB? MG for Cole? Yeah, MG, Marcus Gistel has been as Cole. Yeah. But it's influenced, not totally RB. So it's the same for Hansi Flake. I've also got, oh yeah, and Pellegrino Matarazzo is another influenced one because he was with Nagsman at Hoffenheim. So, yeah, it's not only, like, just straight up RB. It's these, also, these other coaches have been influenced in some way or form. And it goes on forever, as you said. But, yes, the tactics of where everyone is high-pressing, everyone doesn't want possession, everyone wants to counterattack and focus on those fast transitions can make for quite a mind-fucking football. <laughs> it's... To put it frankly, so if you look at the number of goals since the Bundesliga started, since we've had a high introduction of RB-based coaches, 
we have seen the some of the most amount of goals in Bundesliga history. So the 1920 season where we had five Red Bull coaches and three heavily Ragnik influence coaches, we had the 20th most goals in a Bundesliga season. But what's interesting is you might go, oh, top 20, that's not that many. Well, the top 20 was the most since 1987. So that makes it a big jump that we're suddenly seeing. And it's not only the 1920 season, it's 2018-2019, which was the 21st most goals. Last season, 21-22 season, the 25th most goals. And 2020-21 season as well, had the 27th most goals and all of these are since the 1986-1987 season so since this introduction and more introduction of these Red Bull coaches we have seen goals jump up and the number of these goals can jump up for so many reasons but when tactics are like that, the high press, high to mid press intensity, working on the opposition losing the possession and turning over basically into a fast transition. This mainly takes place closer to the opposition goal. So if you win the ball, you're closer to the goal to score. But if you're defending that, let's say you've been pushed into building up where you're not good at build-up play, when you're closer to your own goal and you lose the ball, you're obviously at more risk at conceding a goal. And you can see this really so much in last season where um, Marco Rosa was the coach of Dortmund, Sebastian Hürnes was the coach of Hoffenheim, and Adi Hütter was the coach of Gladbach, because they had, apart from one team who got relegated or two, they had the highest conceded goals after that. The most Dortmund had conceded since just before Jürgen Klopp joined. So those are the kind of ways that teams concede more goals and why it can be such a problem with so many Red Bull coaches in the Bundesliga. Now that Dieter Matichitz, the man who's sort of had an awful lot to say uh, for the direction that that company has taken into sports marketing, now that he's gone, do you think there's going to be any change in the company's focus or are they going to go down that same advertising route, keeping teams like RB Leipzig, RB Salzburg alive? It's interesting. It depends who gets the companies, who he's left in charge and how they manage finances, really. I have no idea how that business works, what happens. It's safe to say that especially RB Leipzig at the moment has found itself in a kind of identity issue as it is. And their kind of lack of sporting director, lack of focus on that side has really cost them in the last few years. It will be weird to see if they can keep it up and if they want to, if there is any kind of thinking at that company level that they don't want to do any of this anymore, that is also something that will have to be talked about. I'm sure it goes to someone and they will keep it running the exact same because we are talking about a billionaire's business and I'm sure there will be people who are set up for this. So a company level, I'm not quite sure. 
RB Leipzig are suffering some identity issues from themselves, so it will be weird to see how that gets sorted out because right now they have gone... As we said, there's not many RB coaches that go to RB Leipzig, and now suddenly there are, and they don't really perform. They've now gone for a sporting director who has been known to pick more possessional-based coaches again, and he's pairing up with Marco Rosa again, which didn't really end the greatest way, and Marco Rosa's still looking quite inconsistent in the Bundesliga. I argue that RB football as a whole, is something called underdog football. We are still in a point of time in football where big teams tend to have more possession. And to make that work, you need to have solutions with the ball. So without a new direction, we might see Leipzig get a bit stagnant, especially if they have this weird hiring now RB coaches, but all their kind of heads up or any of their success needs to be more possession dominant. So yeah, depends on how that all works, really. It's going to be a weird season for them to see where they go next. Wow, great. Uh, Anyways, this is it for another edition of Talking Foosball Extra. This episode has been produced by Aiden Rantoul. Jasmine, always a pleasure and delight to talk to you. Uh, Where can people find your work and where can they find you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter, underscore Jasmine Barber. Please, if you're interested in especially RB football, I have a podcast project coming out very soon. So keep an eye out because we go into this a little bit deeper. And I've also got some really amazing guests talking about it with me. Keeping my eyes peeled. Uh, anyways, my name is Nick Viltog. You can find me at Mom Musings on Twitter. You can find the podcast at Talking Foosball. Make sure to go into the iTunes store or wherever you subscribe to your podcast and give us a five-star rating. If you give us a rating, it helps other people to find the podcast and we want to spread the Bundesliga word. Anyways, up next on this channel is Talking Foosball Direct. Until next week, it's goodbye for now.